Amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 14 as we continue in our series, Free at Last, from the book of Exodus. I've entitled this sermon, God's Glory in Our Salvation. God's Glory in Our Salvation. Listen to the word of the Lord from Exodus 14. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath. By the way, I worked on that word all week. I'm still not sure I got it right. <laughs> Between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and his army, took his army with him, took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from behind them, uh, moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariot, and his horsemen. And in the morning, 
watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces through the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily and the Egyptians said let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians the Lord said to Moses stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians upon their chariots and upon their horsemen so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you now by the power of the Spirit would anoint each one of us as all of us, including the one speaking, sits under the authority of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would do that work in us by the power of your spirit, through your word, continue to conform us into the image of your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. I wanted to be famous at one point in my life. Just ask my wife and kids, to whom I have humorously laid out all the things that I could have done, to which they have all appropriately laughed. We, we have fun in the Miles household, poking fun at ourselves. Of course, for many who want to be famous, there is this self-centered desire to have their names known for being great at something, either among or often over against their peers. And while it is not true in all cases, we have been confronted more and more with the truth and sometimes the tragic truth that the person behind the great name is not as glorious as they were made out or made themselves out to be. Indeed, in so many cases, we find that the greatness of one's name has come at the expense of others. That is, others have had to bear the cost of another making his or her name great. Pharaoh had a name, a name that at the time was renowned throughout the world. And through conquest and expansion, he was making that name ever more known. But everyone didn't get to participate in the blessing of that greatness. There were those who bore the cost of making Pharaoh and Egypt great. Don't get it twisted. While the original Pharaoh who began Israel's slavery couched it in terms of Israel's potential to be a future threat, to the well-being of the nation should they decide to turn against Egypt. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 1 reveals another motive. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh cities, Pithom and Ramses. Israel, brothers and sisters, was free labor for the economic and geographical expansion of Egypt. And this is what happens so often when human beings go about to publish the greatness of their own names, of the greatness of their own people. 
or the greatness of their own nation or the greatness of their own families. They force others to bear the cost of building that greatness. And so no wonder when God comes, when God, when God comes and confronts Pharaoh, when God comes and confronts Pharaoh and set his people free, he couches his salvation in the context of the spread of his own name, repeating the phrase that has rung with some variation throughout uh, this narrative, and the, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The greatness of Pharaoh in Egypt's name has brought oppression. But the publishing, the publishing, brothers and sisters, of God's name, the publishing of God's name will bring, will bring salvation and will bring deliverance. And that is the difference, actually, in the Lord's publishing of his name and our publishing of our own names. God publishes his name not for vain glory, not to oppress, not to mistreat, not to abuse, but to save. We never have to worry with God, as we do with human beings, that the person behind the name might fall short of the glory of what is proclaimed about them. With God, with God, we never have to worry about waking up to the news that he has been discovered as less than what we believed him to be. Indeed, he is, as he is described later in the scriptures by James, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's why we can rejoice. We can rejoice in his deliverance. That's why we can rejoice in his salvation that he promises to bring to us who believe. He doesn't change, and his name is a guarantee to all who cry out to him that they will indeed be saved. Our salvation, in fact, is bound up in the glory of the name of our God. Through our salvation, through our salvation, he glorifies his own name, not only among us, but throughout the world. And make no mistake, it is for the glory of his name, brothers and sisters, that he delivers that he sets free, that he saves. So what does the glory of God's name look like in the accomplishment of our salvation? Well, first and foremost, God's glory comes through God's unassisted victory over our enemies. His unassisted victory over our enemies. At several points in the story, God speaks to how Israel's final deliverance from Pharaoh and, and Egypt's oppression will come to pass. And twice, God speaks to his intentions to get glory through the defeat of Pharaoh and his army, through his military. In addition to this, he tells Israel through Moses in verse 14 that they will not have to do anything to accomplish their deliverance, for the Lord will fight on their behalf against Pharaoh and his army. <laughs> through these words and through the subsequent defeat of Pharaoh and his army, uh, throwing Pharaoh's military into the sea, God demonstrates that salvation comes from him and him alone. He demonstrates that our salvation is ultimately accomplished not through our hands, but through his hands. But, but in order to, to, to accomplish this victory, God has to thoroughly expose and then conquer the myths that Pharaoh and Egypt keep returning to in their oppressive actions. 
the, the myths, if you will, that undergird uh, the oppression that they have um, spent upon Israel. I want to tell you this morning, the myths that undergird oppression die hard. They die hard. And those who have had to labor under oppression understand this all too well. And so in verses 1 to 3, we read first that God takes his people along a path that seems counterintuitive. He sends them one way and then causes them to turn around and go in the opposite direction. And it's not just that they went in the opposite direction, but they camped in a location that made the possibility of escape nearly impossible. And what is more, God does not hide his reasoning from Moses for why he was doing this. He tells them that Pharaoh will receive news of Israel's confusing route and will pursue the people of Israel. And we learn later from Pharaoh and his people's own words that they intend to regain control over the people of Israel, returning them to their place as slaves. Now, now God tells Moses that, that through this final conflict with Pharaoh and his army, he will get glory over Pharaoh and his army, and that the Egyptians will finally come to know that he is the Lord. Now, I said, I said that in accomplishing our salvation, God has to expose and conquer the, the, the myths that oppressors keep returning to in their oppression. What, what seems clear both from what God says Pharaoh will come to believe and what Pharaoh and his officials actually say in verse 5 is that they still believe they are dealing with a God who is little more than a tribal deity. Yes, yeah, yes, he's powerful. Yes, he can do amazing miracles, but, 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 but he is still just like the gods we worship. And what greater sign of this than, than Israel's current situation? They're, they're looking at Israel's route and their current location and interpreting from that that God has likely abandoned them. Maybe Israel has offended him in some way, or maybe he simply, like the gods they serve, decided to leave them for some capricious reason. Either way, they're, they're interpreting Israel's situation as an indication that their gods have favored them and presented an opportunity for them to recapture Israel. The wilderness, says Pharaoh, has shut them in. That's what he says. And this would, of course, this would, of course, lead to the reasoning that they came to in verses 5 to 7, that they had made a mistake in letting Israel go free. I mean, even that shows the, the, the depth of the myths that they were clinging to, for they, for, for they didn't let Israel go free. God actually set Israel free. But now God is going to bring those myths to an end. He's going to show by his own power that he is no tribal God, that he is no local deity, but that he is the true and living God and that there are no other gods beside him. Let me tell you why that's good news for us when we are confronting enemies, physical and spiritual. It's good news because our enemies often mistake our location and our condition as a sign of their advantage over us, as a sign that they will be able to undo God's plans for us. And in their attacks, they think that they are going to uproot us from those plans. But God's plans for us are eternal. And his salvation extends beyond what our enemies can touch 
with their oppressive acts. And so when the battles of life are raging, I can trust in God that my salvation is in his hands. This gives me the freedom to exercise faith and not doubt, to exercise good and not evil, to exercise faithfulness and not fear. Indeed, I can do what the songwriter said, perhaps interpreting the words of Moses to God's people, be still. God will fight your battles. Be still. God will fight your battles. Be still. God will fight your battles. God will fight your battles if you just keep still. Of course, you know being still uh, is not in terms of doing nothing, but in doing what God says in the face of the battle. So I got a question for you this morning. What battles are you facing where you feel God calling you to be still and trust him? And I mean be still not in terms of doing nothing, but rather doing the things that are in keeping with faith. When we are in battles, we are often tempted to fight the way our enemies fight. We're tempted to return evil for evil, to return reviling for reviling, to return violence for violence, to return lying for lying. And part of the reason we are tempted to fight in the same way that our enemies fight is because we're not really sure that God doesn't need our help in defeating our enemies. In in other words, we think a lot of times that God does need our help because he doesn't understand our enemies as well as we do. He doesn't know that this person, to overcome your enemy, this unassisted victory of our enemies, he he also receives glory through the exercise of our faith. Israel had gone out of Egypt boldly, according to verse 8. That is, they went out boasting in what God had done on their behalf. But no sooner than they were getting used to their newfound freedom, uh, no, 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 no sooner than they were getting used to their newfound freedom, marching toward their new home. They lift up their eyes, and what do they see? They see their oppressors coming after them. And that boldness turns quickly into debilitating fear. And it would be easy for us to to judge Israel's fear and to conclude that they were wrong to be afraid. After all, God had just done these incredible miracles on their behalf, which they had witnessed. How then? Could they be afraid in this moment? But if you've ever lived under oppression and been set free, then you know that one of the challenges is overcoming the fear that your oppressor will return and do you harm. And given that in some situations, oppressors have returned and done their victims hard, the fear is not unfounded. This fear leads Israel to conclude something that on its face seems completely absurd. They essentially tell Moses that they would have been better off in Egypt. A statement that Moses is going to hear on more than one occasion from them in their time wandering in the wilderness. In this instance, they they indicate to Moses that, that this was in fact their desire to be left alone to serve the Egyptians, which is, of course, completely out of accord with their present position. They didn't leave Egypt reluctantly. They, they, they left defiantly. But this is what fear does. It makes our memory and our reasoning faulty. How can anyone think that slavery is a better reality than freedom? Douglas Stewart says this. He says, when hardship is encountered, 
the miserable past suddenly looks like the good old days. The Israelites were simply thinking the way most people think of the past when the present seems unbearable. But God, in bringing glory to his name in our salvation, works to root this fear out of us. And he does it not by angrily dismissing our fear, but by speaking through his servant the words that we so often hear from God in times of trouble. Moses turns to these fearful people and he says to them, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Do not fear because the Lord sees you and he sees the plans your enemies have for you and he is determined to frustrate those plans, to fight on your behalf and bring about your salvation. In this case, the Egyptians you are now seeing are people whom you will see no more. And this encouragement to not fear has embedded in it a call, a call to exercise faith in the Lord's promise to save. And this call is shown most clearly in God's interaction with Moses. The, the, The people cry out and God gives them a message through Moses to not fear. Moses cries out too. Yet, Do not fear is not what Moses hears. Rather, God says to Moses, why do you cry to me? And I'm reading this this week and I'm like, why can't the leader get a do not fear? Come on, man. Yet what Moses receives is, in fact, God's do not fear. Only it comes in the form of God's call to Moses to exercise faith in what God has given him as a sign of his power to save. He tells Moses to encourage the people to keep moving. And and, and then he tells him to raise his staff and stretch it out over the sea. And and why is this so important? It, It is as if God is saying to Moses, Moses, when we first started out on this journey, I asked you a question. In in response to your fears regarding the call that I had given to you. I asked, what is that in your hand? And and you responded to me, a staff. I I then took that staff and I I made it a sign of my powerful presence with you. Every time I have told you to use it or lift it up, it has been followed by a display of my power. Moses, the staff is still in your hand. The sign of my powerful presence is still in your hand. Do not fear. Take the next step of faith and trust that my power is present with you. And I just came to tell somebody today, brothers and sisters, that the sign of God's powerful presence with us is still there. I just came to tell you today that the spirit of the living God is on the inside of you. When you are facing battles in which you are relying on God's deliverance, the command is the same. Do not fear. Take the next step of faith that I have called you to, trusting that my power is there for you in the sign that I have given you (laughs) through the presence of my spirit, which is on the inside of you. So I have a question for some of y'all this morning who are in the middle of some battles. A question for you. What's the next step? What is the next step of faith that God is calling you to as you confront your enemies, spiritual or human? And I ask this knowing that the Holy Spirit is in each of us, and that through the counsel of others, God speaks to us 
regarding the next step he is calling us to in the battle. And if we're honest, we often get stuck in the same place that Israel got stuck. We get stuck in fear. We know the next thing to do. We're just afraid to do it. We're just afraid to do it. I know I need to cut off this relationship. I know I need to speak up on behalf of this person or this group of people because of what is happening to them. I know I need to stop putting myself in this place of temptation because of the road it is leading me down. We often know the next step that is before us, but we're often afraid to take it for fear that we will still be overcome by our enemies at the end of it. But if God is with us, and he is, then we can take the next step trusting that the resources that we need, the power that we need to do the next thing is there for us. Indeed, we may still be afraid as we march toward the next thing that God has called us to. But the only way to learn that our God is there is to keep moving from one exercise of faith to the next exercise of faith. Head this way. Okay, God, but there's a C. Take this step. Okay, God, but there's a... There's a mm. I know you see everything. There's a C. Come on. There's a wilderness. Mm. There is a, there's not a next step. Mm. I'm talking to somebody this morning. I, I, there's nowhere else to go. If I walk this way, it's the water. If I walk that way, it's the wood. There is no way to step, God. I know. Trust me. When you get there, I'll open the door. So that you can take the next step. Amen, people of God. God's glory comes through the unassisted his unassisted victory over our enemies. It comes through the exercise of our faith, faithfulness. Lastly, it comes, it comes, God's glory comes through God's acts of protective care. I love this part of the story. In these verses, there's this incredible picture of the protective care of God over his people as he works his deliverance in their lives. When Israel looks up and sees what is coming in the Egyptian chariot force that is rushing towards her, she knows she's in danger. She's outmatched. She is not prepared to face this enemy. The Israelites, from their own words, clearly believed that they were going to die. They were no doubt encouraged by the words of Moses, by his confident assertion that the Egyptian army chasing them would not be seen by them again. But God does something remarkable. Something that displays his love and his protective care for his people. The the, the angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud that had been in front of Israel shifts positions from the front to the back. That is the angel in the cloud or the angel which was the cloud sets himself in between his people and the coming army. 
like, like, like a protective parent sensing and seeing danger and places their bodies in, in harm's way to protect their children. So God moves into that same position, placing himself in between the danger that is coming and his people. And through this act, the, the Egyptian army is no longer able to advance, being separated all night from God's people, allowing them to start their journey through the sea, which, which God has separated, which God has separated, and, and, and they're able to now begin the journey to walk on dry ground that God has prepared through a divine act. And by the time they are able to advance, God, God has set it all up so that the Egyptian army would meet their final defeat by being washed away by the returning sea that God brought to pass by Moses lifting up his staff again, causing the waters to return and drown Egypt's army. And for someone this morning, facing danger or facing enemies too strong, too strong for them to defeat, I got news for you. This is not the last time that God would put his own self in between his people and an enemy too strong for them to face. It would not be the first time through, through that act of protective care that God would rescue his people from an enemy that was too strong for them to defeat. For in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to stand in between his people and an enemy even greater than Egypt. While sin and death were chasing all of us down, Jesus took his own body and placed himself between us and those forces that were too powerful for us to overcome. He absorbed the wrath of God due to us because of our sin. He absorbed the despising and rejection that should have come to us for turning away from the Lord. He carried the griefs and sorrows brought upon us because of our sin. He took the piercing for our transgressions. He absorbed being crushed for our iniquities. He bore the chastisement that has led to our peace, and he let himself be wounded so that we might be healed. All I came to tell somebody this morning is that you are spiritually safe today because Jesus put his body in the way to absorb all that should have come to us because of our sin, and the sin that we brought into this world. The one who has made you spiritually safe is the one who has promised to bring you safe into his kingdom. And so you may be facing this morning hard circumstances today, but don't forget, the one who stood between you and your ultimate enemies is also the one who is with you as you confront those temporal enemies that haunt you in this life. That I can stand no matter what comes my way. My life is in your hands. And that no matter what, brothers, that no matter what, brothers and sisters, covers everything. It covers all we face individually and all that we face corporately in this world. Our lives are in the hands of God. And it's our call to remember that. We're not just to remember it in some abstract sense, but to remember it in the circumstances of those no matter what. Recall to remember it in all those circumstances that Paul recorded as being the reality for believers in 2 Corinthians 4, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always carrying in our body the death of Jesus. We're to remember that our God's protective care is with us in all these things so that we might also know that in affliction we are not crushed, that in being perplexed we are not driven to despair. That in persecution, we are not forsaken. That in being struck down, we will not be destroyed. That in carrying Jesus' death in our bodies, 
we will also experience the life of Jesus as well. Amen, people of God. Isn't this a great salvation that we have received? Came to tell you this morning, the glory of God is bound up in our salvation. And saving us, God's glory is proclaimed. And that glory comes in God's unassisted victory over our enemies. It comes through the exercise of our faith and faithfulness. It comes through the display of God's protective care. All of this glory comes because Jesus put his body on the cross to stand between us and our enemies. So rejoice today, brothers and sisters. You are saved, and that is to the glory of the living God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. And as we prepare to sing, I want us to close out this message by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.